Hey, Fidelity. What's it cost to invest with the Fidelity app? Start with as little as $1 with no account fees or trade commissions on U.S. stocks and ETFs. Hmm, that's music to my ears. I can only talk. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Zero account fees apply to retail brokerage accounts only. Sell order assessment fee not included. A limited number of ETFs are subject to a transaction-based service fee of $100. See full list at fidelity.com slash commissions. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. Day two for bank regulators on Capitol Hill. The biggest shocker so far is that $100 billion was about to leave Silicon Valley Bank in a single day. The digital age changing the game for bank runs and how to prepare for them. We'll look at how regulators plan to address it. And we'll talk to one man who has run a failed bank. Plus, our market guests insist the inflation downtrend is about to resume. We ask what makes him so sure and how he's positioning as a result. And people have been piling into treasuries this year. But has the trade already become too crowded? One of our guests says yes. He joins us with what he's buying instead. Well, it might be some of what's behind uh, Dom on that screen over there. Dom, another pretty nice rally. Look at the Nasdaq. Uh, Some people are buying stocks for sure, Kelly. And to that point, we are up fairly solidly across the board here, as Kelly points out. There is money pouring into equities right now. The Dow Industrials is the laggard right now, only up about 215 points. 32,611 or thereabouts is the trade for the Dow. The S&P 500 is 4,010, up about 39 points, about 1%. Uh, It's been a generally positive day. At the highs of the session, we were up 46 points. At the lows, we were still up 28. So again, tilting towards the high end. And by the way, keep an eye on 4,013. That's why this level is kind of hovering right around here right now. That's the 50-day average price on a rolling basis, a level some technical traders watch. So watch the S&P and the Nasdaq up about one and a quarter percent, 11,856. One reason for the outperformance in that Nasdaq trade is technology and specifically that all-important semiconductor trade. We've often referred to it and traders have in the past as a maybe leading indicator for the broader tech trade overall. Micron on the heels of a better earnings report. Qualcomm, both mentioned positively by analysts, by the way, over at Bernstein, called them one of their top, some of their top picks for the next six months. Intel on its investor day and its update on its data centers and AI up about 6%, NVIDIA up 1.5%, and the Vanek Vector Semiconductor ETF up about 2.5% right now. So watch those chips, generally positive today. And the stock of the day right now is in athletic apparel, consumer discretionary, it's Lululemon, and those shares are soaring right now up about 13%. Lulu comes out and says that basically profits and revenues coming in better than expected. It appears as though their more affluent clients are still buying that higher end yoga wear accessories and that sort of thing. And by the way, their full year forecast also better than estimates. And by the way, Kelly, if this is an indication of that power of Lululemon and the brand right now, the so-called same store sales or sales growth at established store locations 27% higher than the same point last year. So keep an eye on Lulu, up about 13%. I'll send things back over to you. Wow. Thank you, Dom. Well, Congress holds a two-day hearing on the collapse of SVB. Let's keep in mind that bank failures aren't all that uncommon in the United States. There have been over 500 of them, 563, in fact, since 2001. But what's notable this year is their speed and their size. Already this year has had more assets in bank failures than any other year since 2008. And the speed of the run on SVB in particular, pretty breathtaking, with $100 billion headed out the door the day it was seized by the FDIC. My next guest knows a thing or two about failed banks, having taken over the 
insurgency of IndyMac when it failed in 2008, which at the time was the biggest bank failure of the century. And the deposit outflows then pale in comparison to what we're seeing lately. Joining us now is John Bavenzi, chair and co-founder of the Bavenzi Group and former COO at the FDIC. John, welcome. Our own Steve Leesman is here as well, and it's a pleasure to have you both. Um, uh, John, I, I, I loved when we sort of spoke to you beforehand. You had more questions than answers, really, about this whole process. What strikes you as most bizarre about what's gone down the last couple of weeks here? Uh, well, the, the, certainly it's the speed of which things are, are happening. Um, it's fairly unprecedented. It's, it's usually very rare, you know, for it to happen this fast. And the FDIC loves to be able to plan in advance and do things quietly and smoothly without disruption. And uh, when you have something move this fast, you, you, you have to improvise a lot. But you, you're sort of saying, listen, why did the companies fail outright? Why did the FDIC set up a bridge bank? Why not sell them immediately? Why were all uninsured depositors protected? I mean, this is the big question, especially with a company like Circle on the hook for $3 billion or more. And that ultimately goes back to the stablecoin products and that's that kind of thing that are involved here. So people are, are looking at this and wondering if it makes sense Look, in the middle of the fight or whatever the term is, okay, you, the, you throw the rule book out the door, but... Uh, what are some of the biggest oddities to you about what should or shouldn't have been done? Well, it, it's not like this was unprecedented and, and hasn't happened before. To me, this is, you know, very reminiscent of the SNL crisis during the, the 1980s. Some of the problems are exactly the same. Uh, these two institutions had big interest rate mismatches. Um, in the SNL days, it, it was because of, you know, mortgages at 5% when in fighting inflation, interest rates paid to depositors had to go up into double digits. Uh, here, the mismatches were in the long-term securities, but it was the exact same thing that once interest rates went up, uh, these institutions were in big trouble. And so we should, uh, people should have known better. You know, it's also lack of diversification and rapid growth. I mean, rapid growth is uh, is just a red flag to anybody that you've got to look to see if there are problems. And, and these two institutions were had all of those characteristics, just like the SNLs back in the 1980s. Sure, and there have been some feisty exchanges uh, today on Congress. Let's take a listen to one of them uh, where questions are being demanded and, and asked of these regulators. You are not running a consulting operation. Uh, you are running a regulatory operation who can force banks to follow that advice. Um, and interest rates go up, interest rates go down. Certainly our, the Fed in auditing banks ought to know that, especially when this is not a 100-year event. Interest rates go up, interest rates go down. I mean, 2023 has its peculiarities, but it's particularly ironic. It's the Fed that's raising the interest rates, and then the Fed that's not examining banks to see if they can survive if interest rates go up. Let me bring in Steve Leisman on that note, Steve, and what you think some of the ramifications are going to be from these questions and, and these two days of hearings. Well, a lot of it comes down, Kelly, to this notion of whether or not this was a unique failure or there are systemic problems in the way banks are regulating their liquidity issues. I want to go back to what John said, because I've been talking to former regulators, maybe even some former colleagues of John, uh, and I've covered a bunch of bank failures, Kelly. And I think there are 
three rules in the uh, regulator's bank failure uh, checklist. One is, uh, John said this, identify problems early and have a plan. Two is get to the weekend. And three is sell the bank before you have to close it. None of those seem to be the case in this particular case. They weren't really sure that, that Silicon Valley was close to failure. That was not the appearance earlier in the week. In fact, um, Michael Barr testified this morning that they thought Thursday morning they could uh, make it through the day. Mm. $42 billion went out the first day. $100 billion was, rumored, was, was said to be going out the second day. That's when they shut it down. So they could never get to the weekend. Where, why do we do all this stuff on the weekend? Because there's two free days where deposits aren't flowing out. And they couldn't, they had to shut the bank. They couldn't sell a live bank. They had to sell a shuttered bank. And that's one of the reasons why they, uh, the cost is going to be so high. And the issue, I think, for regulators, and maybe John wants to respond to this, is if that's the case, if money can go quicker than ever before, and the regulators can't go to the weekend, we're going to be selling more shuttered banks than we are going to be live banks. And so the cost of these bank failures may go up in the, in the future. John? Yeah, that's a, a scary thing, and, and it's going to require a careful look at you know how we supervise banks, regulate banks, and, and handle bank closings. Um, the FDIC expects it to cost the insurance fund $22 billion for these two banks. That's an enormous amount of money. Um, it's you know by far the most the FDIC's had to, to spend, and, and um, it's... 90% of that is because they protected the uninsured depositors here because they were afraid of uh, contagion. So what would you add to that going forward then, John? I mean, is this the template? So what, the takeaways from the last couple of days in Congress seem to be that there's no appetite to actually raise or extend the FDIC insurance to really back all uninsured deposits in the country. So what, what system are we currently in then? One where deposits have an implicit backstop or one where they, they don't? I, I mean, I would implement something, and I think there's a good chance the regulators will do this, similar to what has been done with the banks over $250 billion in size. Um, after the last crisis, those systemically important banks were required to issue long-term debt that was subordinate to depositors, and it created a cushion between, uh, in addition to the bank's capital, between the depositors and the cost of a bank failure. We haven't heard about runs and concerns at those banks. Um, the same thing should be applied to the mid-sized banks, the next tier from 100 billion to 250 billion hmm. to help give a greater buffer uh, for depositors. Large banks, the systemically important ones that did this, they have uninsured deposits, just like the mid-sized banks, but right. uh, they've been in better position. Steve? Th that is absolutely being discussed right now, exactly what John's talking about, is having additional capital cushions inside the mid-sized banks and whether or not those mid-sized banks ought to be subjected to some of the rules that um, uh, some of the bigger banks are, and the notion that a bank can be systemic without being big. That's a big thing. But, Kelly, I just want to also throw you a certain surrealness about this, uh, the hearing. The regulators are up there saying, we are essentially implicitly guaranteeing all deposits, saying this to Congress. 
which is the same thing as saying we have usurped the power that you reserved for yourself. Right. And Congress doesn't seem to care right now. They seem to be right. okay with that idea, that this idea of an implicit guarantee of which Congress has said specifically in the Dodd-Frank Amendment only Congress can do. Regulators saying we did this and you didn't do it, but the regulators, but the, the congressmen, seem okay with it. The last quick comment on this: Are we putting ourselves? I'll give this to you, John, all over again. I'm so glad that Steve made the point. In a situation where, during 2008, in the spring, Bear collapse was sold to J.P. Morgan in a forced sale. But when we got to the fall, the appetite for bailouts had diminished, had vanished basically. And so Lehman, AIG, there was a sense: Well, now these institutions have to fail. It feels like we're rerunning that playbook because we're saying. These ones got rescued, but we don't want to do it again. And so the next one that goes under feels like it's going to have to go under to make a point, which is exactly the mistake that they made back in 2008. We're rerunning the playbook for the next tier of banks in line. And so I think you're making a great point uh, that we, we need to look at what is it that was done to help protect that first tier in 2008, 2009, um, and extend some of that to this tier. Yeah. All right. We'll leave it there. It's getting too hot in here. Uh, John Bovenzi, Steve Leisman, uh, thank you both very, very much for being here as we conclude the second day of SVB's hearing on Congress. Now, the seven-year notes were up for auction in the meantime, and demand was still kind of weak. Let's get to Rick Santelli. Rick, what's going on here? You know, yesterday we had a pretty good five-year note auction. I thought maybe investors were becoming a little bit more lukewarm to jumping in the fray here, but it doesn't seem to happen with the seven-year. Seven-year yield was 3.626 on 35 billion of those seven years. The problem was is that the when issued market was 3.615. Higher yield, lower price, it tailed by more than a basis point. All the other metrics, well, they were pretty weak except for direct bidders. Direct bidders, you know, those big pensions and insurance can always count on them to be purchasers of late. Their numbers actually have moved up a bit. Remember, a lot of collateral is gone off the street. Doesn't surprise me direct bidders are stepping up a bit. Yields popped just a bit on the seven-year, and as we've both talked about, it has a nice fit back in the day with mortgages, but with the convexity issues and nobody prepaying anymore, that has moved a bit on the maturity. So it is not the most popular, but it definitely is telling that we can't move paper with the type of demand by investors that we once did. $120 billion in supply in only one of the auctions was anything to brag about, and that was yesterday's five-year. Yeah, I love the point about the structural changes, uh, Rick, and demand for that paper. So, I mean, seven-year three, I don't know, maybe I'll be in the next auction. Thank you, Rick. Rick Santelli. Let's get to the latest on the housing front on that note, actually. Pending home sales showing no sign of recovery. Diana Olick does have the details. Diana. Well, Kelly, sales were up month to month, but just barely under 1% and still down over 21% from a year ago. And here's why. Take a look at mortgage rates. They started dropping off their fall highs in December and then came down sharply in January. But boom, shot right back up in February. These pending sales are based on signed contracts during the month. So people out shopping when their purchasing power suddenly got clipped because of these higher rates. We can see it in the regional counts. Sales were up everywhere except in the West, where homes are most expensive and people are therefore stretching the most. Rates really hit affordability there. Now, we have seen home prices cooling off in the last seven months, but they're still very high. And the surge in sales in January may actually have stalled that price drop. We've seen some more current reports that show prices actually moving higher in some markets in February. The overriding issue, though, is that there are still 
far too few homes for sale given the continued strong demand. Kelly? A theme we keep seeing over and over again. Diana, thank you. Diana Olick. Speaking of real estate, our next guest says housing will lead the economy into a recession and there's even more downside risk ahead. How should you position? He's got three words for investors. Bigger is better. Plus, nearly a decade after pleading guilty to helping wealthy Americans evade taxes, a new Senate report finds Credit Suisse in violation of that agreement. Eamon Javers spoke exclusively with two whistleblowers working alongside the government. He's got details on their two-year investigation with Credit Suisse, now, of course, owned by rival UBS. As we head to break, let's get a check on markets near session highs. Dow's up 257, S&P up to 4017, NASDAQ's up 1.5%, 10-year at 356. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back, everybody. The Nasdaq leading the broad rally we're seeing in stocks today, up about one and a half percent and on track for its best quarter in a couple of years, up almost 14 percent year to date. But my next guest says not so fast. TC's big downside risks and says the downtrend in inflation is about to resume. Joining me now is Paul Christopher, head of global market strategy at Wells Fargo Investment Institute. Paul, it's good to see you. And um, it's interesting how people say they sort of implicitly maybe agree with you about inflation. Uh, heading lower and and that's a reason to buy things like the nasdaq do you do you think that's a valid argument not really i think you're getting some bid in the tech stocks right now for a couple of reasons uh and one is that there's an expectation in markets that the fed is going to cut interest rates we don't happen to agree with that but if interest rates go lower that would be a boost to tech and the other factor is the dollar the dollar has weakened here. A lot of tech companies get a lot of revenues from overseas, so a weaker dollar allows them to bring home more dollars per, per euro earned overseas. So those are positives helping tech right now. But keep in mind, this, these markets are really trading in broad ranges since, since last April, and there's still some, some other shoes to drop, let's say. Why don't you think that the Fed is going to end up cutting rates? Because it looks like the argument is either because inflation falls enough or because the economy gets bad enough. Yeah, we're not sure that the economy is going to get bad enough fast enough. And we're also not sure that the, the inflation rate, which is on its way down, is, is necessarily going to fall in a straight line. So the Fed really has to avoid the mistakes they made in the 1970s, where they let inflation off the hook a little bit too soon, a little bit too quickly, and it came roaring back. That's their biggest fear right now. They've said so. 
Uh, and so we think even if they don't hike much more, they're going to hold rates for longer. That's going to, and as inflation does gradually fall, that's going to leave interest rates more and more positive in terms of inflation-adjusted terms. And that's going to be a negative for the economy. I want to just mention the point of view from Lars Christensen, who has been more and, and who said, you know, going back a year or two, that the Fed was too loose, that now they're too tight. And that actually he sees deflation as a much bigger risk once we get into 2024, 2025. You know, this is still an out of consensus view, but it's consistent with the policy mistakes that we've seen in the past. If he's right, would you want to stick with tech stocks and the Nasdaq and Bitcoin and DraftKings and everything else that's levitating? <laughs> Definitely not. Definitely not some of those. Uh, but we still see some quality characteristics in tech that makes it one of our favorites. We also like healthcare here and the energy sector, both of which are going to generate cash for investors. So we like that quality play for right now. And we would be more selective, though, and wouldn't take that whole list that you just ran through. So broadly speaking, then, your advice is you can stay in the market, you just get big, you go to quality, some of those sectors that you just mentioned. I mean, I, doesn't this seem like a, a no-brainer case for fixed income, though, if you think that, you, I mean, maybe you don't think that the Fed's going to back off here. But if the market's right, then wouldn't now be the time to own, you know, anything uh, going out on the, on the Treasury spectrum? Yeah, both and. Uh, let yeah. me explain. We, we think that uh, long-term yield, they've backed down a little bit, but they're going to go back up to their recent highs. We think that's going to be near the peak. So we've been saying since in October that this is a great time for investors to incrementally add to their long-term bond holdings here, not just for diversification, but for safety here in the short term. But we also think that you know going forward, this market has been in such a trading range going back to last April that as we get to that 42, 4300 level on the S&P, we would just pull back, hold on to that cash that you have as you, if you're an equity investor. As the market hits, an, uh, let's say, some new crises, some new bad news, market comes back down 37, 3800. Okay, that's where we put some of that cash back to work on our favorite sectors. All right, Paul, thanks for joining me today. Appreciate Thank you, it. Thank you, Kelly. Paul Christopher with Wells Fargo. And we'll continue this debate, by the way, uh, next half hour. First, though, is the metaverse becoming the metaverse? Meh. Uh, we'll look at who's reigning in their spending, how they're doing it, and what it means for the future of that company formerly known as Facebook. Plus, the age-old debate getting some new life after these big market swings. Where do you put your money, stocks or bonds? Our two guests are getting ready to step into the ring. And as we head to break, let's take a look at the Dow heat map with Intel actually leading the way after its investor day. Stocks surging 6% on those chip updates. UNH and Merck are the only two names in the red right now, despite the widespread bullishness on healthcare. The exchange is back after this. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. NASDAQ leading the way today. Micron, one of the names outperforming. Dow broadly up 250, or about three quarters of 1%. That's near session highs. Bitcoin back above 28,000 today, hovering near its highest level since last June. And if you take a look at Bitcoin's price alongside the triple Qs this year, it's handily outperformed the mega caps. You can see this gap that I'm talking about. Uh, but some investors have noticed that the trading relationship broadly seems to be the two moving in the same direction. Why charts crunch the numbers? Here's the correlation between the triple Qs 
revenues and Bitcoin over the past year or so. Um, this used to be as high, uh, I think we got up to about 90% back here, fell as low as about 40% at the lows, and now is all the way back up to about a 70% correlation. So again, pretty striking and probably speaks a lot to the liquidity environment as well that seems to be buoying these kinds of trades. Elsewhere, Disney is laying off Marvel Entertainment Chair Ike Perlmutter. He had been with the company since selling Marvel to Disney for $4 billion in 2009, though the 80-year-old's involvement has slowly diminished. Today's move comes after his recent attempt to have his friend, activist investor Nelson Peltz, join the board. That led to the proxy fight, of course, where Peltz ultimately withdrew after Disney and Bob Iger in particular unveiled their plan to cut costs. So Perlmutter out, Disney stock up 1.5% in the midst of broad layoffs. Let's get to Christina Parts and Evelis now for a CNBC News update. Hi, Christina. Hi, Kelly. And here's your CNBC News update at this hour. King Charles arriving in Germany for his first international state visit since becoming the new British monarch. Charles will address issues facing both countries, such as sustainability and the crisis in Ukraine during his three-day visit to Berlin. Germany's president is expected to greet Charles and Queen Consort Camilla at the Brandenburg Gate as a symbol of the country's division during the Cold War and subsequent reunification. Twitter temporarily restricting Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene's congressional account after she repeatedly posted a graphic that referred to a, quote, trans day of vengeance. According to a screenshot Greene posted on her personal account, Twitter says it temporarily limited some account features with full functionality scheduled to be restored in seven days. And today marks the 50th anniversary of U.S. combat troops leaving South Vietnam and the beginning of the end to the direct military involvement in the Vietnam War. Nearly 1,000 ceremonies will be held in towns and cities across the country today. Kelly? Christina, thank you very much, Christina Parts and Evelis. Still ahead, it's not just Starbucks or Disney reinstating a former CEO. UBS is also bringing back a familiar face. What the return of Sergio Armadi means for the bank as it takes over Credit Suisse, and if that's enough to put investors' minds at ease over the banking systems more broadly. We're back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. U.S. banks taking the spotlight on Capitol Hill the past couple days. European banks making some headlines, too, though. UBS shares are higher on the news. The bank is returning Sergio Armani to the role of CEO to lead its takeover of Credit Suisse. Meantime, regulators are investigating one trade that could have led to a big drop in Deutsche Bank shares last week, which fueled an industry-wide sell-off. Those shares hired today, but it's been a rough month for the European banks. The stock 600 down 15 percent in March. Deutsche Bank more than 20 percent. Joining me now to discuss is Alex Frangos, Europe Finance Editor at the Wall Street Journal. Alex, it's great to see you again. Welcome. Hey, Kelly. How are you doing? Good. What's the mood over there? Is there a sense that, well, okay, Credit Suisse is Credit Suisse, or is there a little bit of nervousness about how much this could broaden out? I, I mean, I think there is still nervousness, maybe a little bit less today because of their Armadi appointment. Uh, you know, he's someone who people just widely respect. He came into UBS and uh, you know, cleaned things up. Uh, last decade and, you know, let, left there a few years ago on a very high note. Um, and he's coming back in to redo that, you know, kind of redo the job all over again of, you know, shrinking an investment bank and focusing this now much larger institution on um, on wealth management. Uh, but, you know, underneath the surface, you know, sh- shares are up, you know, again today. It's that's they're making feel, people feel better. But, you know, the prices of, uh, you know, in, in the bond markets are still um, are still down. The credit default swaps, which which spiked last week and, and a lot of people pointed to as maybe the cause or an amplification of, of concerns about European banks, you know, they're still, you know, elevated. And uh, inst- until we still see those come down, 
Um, you know, I think that's a sign that there there are still some jitters out there. Sure. And, you know, people will say, hey, markets are so thin that one big trade on credit default swaps can move the market for Deutsche Bank. And, you know, yes, that's true. And they're probably less liquid than normal. But um, you were seeing big reactions to this. Why? Are they justified concerns about Deutsche or as we see the market kind of testing the weakness and, and looking for the next institution that might be on the chopping block? Should we just get used to this kind of exercise or does it tell us about uh, vulnerabilities that might actually exist in the global banking system? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the, C the CDS is an easy thing for people to point to and say, oh, it's, it's a very thin market. This is the reason why things are, you know, are, are in trouble. But uh, you know, there are other indicators that people are worried. You know, the prices of the AT1 bonds, which got, you know, the Credit Suisse has got wiped out and that reverberated across the market. Those are down a lot. And that's telling investors that long term that, you know, cost of capital for banks has gone up. So that has people worried. But there is this poking and prodding at, you know, all the, you know, the usual suspects. You know, mm -hmm. Deutsche Bank five years ago was the Credit Suisse of its time. But it it had, you know, a lot longer to, to go through its reform program, shrink its Wall Street presence cut jobs, you know, get on a more solid footing. And, you know, what's interesting is, you know, it had that, you know, big fall last week. And I don't want to make any predictions about what's going to happen in the future. But, you know, there were supporters, there were people in the market who came back and said, hey, wait, no, this is this is a bank that has changed. This is not Credit Suisse. And we're willing to buy its shares. There was a bid there. There was someone there willing to buy it. But, you know, things feel a little bit better the last couple of days. But as you know, you, you and I have both lived through yes. uh, crises before. These things go on for a long time. So it's you know, it's it's really hard to call the all. You know, I, I I this is unfair to ask, but I can't see you and not ask about commercial real estate. I mean, you're over there now. There's plenty of crises over there maybe to worry about. And back here, we're all kind of pulling out the playbooks and saying, OK, who has commercial real estate exposure, especially on the office front? I mean, um, I don't know if you want to just offer any any uh, sort of observation, uh, having lived through that episode in 2008. Yeah, well, I mean, it's Deutsche Bank again, still, you know, just despite <laughs> despite what you'd think, still has a pretty large exposure to commercial real estate in the U.S. Hmm. You know, they were obviously a very big player before the crisis. Um, but, you know, the exposures are different. Um, and, the, you know, people say there's, you know, there's 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 a little bit you know, there's a lot more equity in the system. Uh, but again, the world has changed in a way, you know, you know, what happened in 2008 was different. It was, you know, it was an overbuilding crisis. Um, There's just too much supply and there had been too much credit. You know, this time it might be a, it's a demand problem. It's, you know, the world has changed because of COVID. Nobody's going back to the office. And in fact, people are going back to the office less in the U.S. than in Europe. So arguably, you know, commercial real estate in Europe might be not quite as bad. But again, it's the, you know, the, the things have changed in the U.S. And you know, it's just something, you know, people have been flagging for a couple of years. And now those leases are starting to roll. And, um, you know, landlords are, you know, having a bit of trouble. Yeah, no, it's, uh, as with so many people lately, Alex, it's both great to see you again and somewhat worrying because you go, okay, uh, we're going, we're going through one of these periods again. Uh, thanks for your time this evening. We appreciate it very much. Great to be here. Alex Frangos with The Wall Street Journal. Sticking with the European banks, if you thought the UBS takeover of Credit Suisse ended <laughs> drama there, think again. Our Eamon Javers has a new investigation into its dealings, particularly with some wealthy American clients, Eamon. Hey there, Kelly. The Senate Finance Committee today released a new report detailing allegations against Credit Suisse, the century-old Zurich-based bank that, that collapsed and was rescued by the Swiss government and UBS earlier this month. The report alleges that Credit Suisse has been helping American clients hide hundreds of millions of dollars from the IRS despite an agreement to cooperate with U.S. tax authorities a decade ago. 
Senate investigators tell CNBC they have found 25 American families who have secreted away as much as $700 million in the bank in recent years. And they say that reveals a corporate culture at Credit Suisse that played at least a part in the bank's ultimate failure. I sat down exclusively with two former Credit Suisse bankers who served as key witnesses for the committee's investigation. CNBC has agreed to disguise the entities, uh, the identities of the bankers in order to protect them because they fear retaliation from the bank. Our interview was conducted in the weeks before the bank failed. So what secrets did you turn over to the Americans? Well, I'm specific about an, an American family that over years, years and years and years um, hid their money in Switzerland and did not comply with their uh, taxes. And you knew the name of the family? Correct. And you knew how much money they had? I knew the money they had, and I, I, I knew the accounts were all numbered secret accounts that were named by Italian cities. Code words were Italian cities? Were Italian cities. In 2014, Credit Suisse pled guilty to aiding and assisting U.S. taxpayers in filing false tax returns and agreed to pay a $2.6 billion penalty. At the time, the bank pledged to comply with American tax authorities in the future. But the Senate Finance Committee today says the Swiss bank didn't do that. Instead, the committee alleges the bank engaged in a long-running scheme to hide American assets by switching the nationalities of some U.S. taxpayers to other countries. Back in 2014, Credit Suisse executives told senators on Capitol Hill that they had cleaned up their act. We have proactively taken steps to require that only those U.S. clients who establish compliance with U.S. tax laws can be clients of our bank. That was a lie. Why do you say that? Well, they testified that they were 100% compliant. They testified that they've gone through all the accounts and they no longer had a problem. Not only did they have a problem, they had a very big problem on their hands. How do you know that? Well, I know that because I've seen firsthand what they did. One of the whistleblowers told me how the scheme allegedly worked, by making sure wealthy American clients got second passports so the bank could justify counting them as foreign and not American accounts. So you're talking about Americans who hold two passports. Correct. They open the Swiss account in the foreign passport, and they just put their American passport in the pocket and their IRS obligations in their pocket. Exactly. Senate Finance Committee investigators obtained emails from inside the bank. In one, an American client who is the heir to a $200 million fortune hidden inside Credit Suisse writes to his Swiss banker. The subject line of the email reads, U.S. citizenship renounced. And the American says, attached is a confirmation letter I got in the embassy. I just tried to reach you. Congratulations, the banker replies. This is a big step for you, and I know it was not easy at all. Hear you soon. The heir to the fortune replies, thanks. Hopefully this should also make CS now more relaxed. He closes with a smiley face. Senate Finance Committee Chairman Ron Wyden told me it's not clear how much, if any, secret American money remains in the bank as UBS takes over. But he said he wants the U.S. Department of Justice to take another look at the bank's 2014 plea deal, which he says gave the bank a penalty discount for future cooperation. It is still going on. As of just the last couple of days, even more money has been found to have been concealed. And there are very substantial issues here. So I'm not taking anything off the table. But clearly, it's time to prosecute and ensure that there are 
penalties that send a strong message. We reached out to Credit Suisse and a spokesperson there told us Credit Suisse does not tolerate tax evasion. In its core, the report describes legacy issues, some from a decade ago. And we have implemented extensive enhancements since then to root out individuals who seek to conceal assets from tax authorities. And to be clear, Kelly, the two Swiss bankers we spoke with here do have a vested interest in what they're saying. Under U.S. law, whistleblowers to the IRS stand to receive between 15 and 30 percent of anything the U.S. government collects. So these two secret bankers stand to make millions of dollars potentially, and U.S. taxpayers will potentially recover even more. Back over to you. Well, it's, it's been an issue as we've tried to figure out what the fate of Credit Suisse itself would be. You know, could there be an American bank involved? Okay, probably not because of all these know your customer and, and legacy issues. So, yes, UBS uh, has now come in. I don't know. They obviously got big financial help from the Swiss government in doing so. Right. I don't know what kind of legal protection that uh, might offer or not at this point. Well, part of the deal for UBS to acquire Credit Suisse included about $9 billion in, in liability funding. So there is sort of a, a slush fund, if you want to call it that, for extra liability issues that might crop up here as part of the deal. Presumably any settlement would come out of that money, uh, but it's not clear what the settlement might be here. Uh, the Department of Justice is going to have to weigh in. We asked them for comment. Uh, they declined to comment, so we don't know what's going to happen. There's some liability overhang here for UBS. And the idea of an American bank coming in and bailing out Credit Suisse or American taxpayers coming in and bailing out Credit Suisse, a bank which has this kind of history of helping Americans avoid paying their taxes, right. the very taxes that would be used to bail out the bank in the future, that seems like a political non-starter. Yeah. Eamon, great reporting. Thank you so much for bringing Thanks, that Kelly. to us. Eamon Javers in Washington. Still ahead, Disney, just the latest company to abandon its metaverse plans on the heels of Meta's plan to count, cut 20,000 jobs. We also have Microsoft shuttering its VR platform. What will it take for the metaverse to get its mojo back? We have that next. Welcome back. Headline in the Wall Street Journal today has the metaverse quickly turning into the metaverse. Julia Borston here with today's tech check and how these ambitions have not lived up to the hype. And Julia, it's easier for other companies to jettison them. It's a little more awkward for Facebook to do so. Well, look, Facebook is still focused on the metaverse over the long run, but it is interesting to hear from Facebook that they are investing in AI and AI, which will help not just in their metaverse ambitions, but also in things like advertising. Obviously, the hype cycle has shifted from metaverse to uh, an attention to AI. But one thing that I think is really interesting, Kelly, is to think about maybe we're just redefining the metaverse. Maybe the metaverse was originally supposed to all be about headsets, VR, and now it's more about having a virtual experience maybe on your phone. So it'll be interesting to see what happens when Apple introduces their headset, um, whether we'll see that really accelerate adoption of headsets or whether we'll see more um, a conversation about things like Fortnite and Roblox. Maybe those are the metaverse. Maybe you can interact with some of these sort of horizon world tools that Meta has been investing in. And maybe that can be the metaverse without people actually having to buy the headsets. So, yes. Um I really want to pivot and talk about this letter. But I, before I talk about the AI letter, I guess one more point to make on this is the metaverse has not arrived yet. So should Facebook keep investing in it, keep doubling down on it? Um, he's, Mark Zuckerberg has absolutely leaned into this year of efficiency idea, but does it need to go deeper into, the whole, um, to the, into their whole ambitions in the metaverse? 
Well, look, Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse plan is a plan for 2030. So we were talking about nearly 10 years out from when he first announced it. My understanding is that though Meta, the the parent company, has done um, plenty of layoffs, those are really across the board. It's not like they cut back dramatically in the metaverse area. They did cut back sort of, uh, you know, sort of consistently across the board there. But they're continuing to invest for that 10-year vision. I do think that more near-term We'll talk about ways they're going to try to bring the metaverse to life and things that are a lot more accessible and things that weren't really even characterized as the metaverse before, such as gaming or just more interactive social experiences where instead of your face, maybe it's an avatar, stuff like that. Yeah, Redefining then, rather than moving away from it. Oh, sure. And it's a perfect pivot because what was a lot of hype and, and looked like it could become a reality in, in the metaverse is actually here in terms of AI and it's totally uh, taken all the oxygen out of the room. So we have this open letter from folks who say we need to stop all, what are the details exactly? Stop all AI what? I mean, can you freeze things like Bard and and Ernie and Bing, you know, all the rest of the cast of characters? So Elon Musk and some others, including Tristan Harris, um, who um, Mm -hmm. has been an advocate for privacy. Now he's focused on some concerns around AI. What they've said is they want to pause all development and sort of like put a put a pause on things, saying that not that you can't keep on um, releasing things that are already in motion or keep interacting with some of these tools like ChatGPT, but they want to make sure there isn't another generation of ChatGPT. We have ChatGPT4. They don't want to have GPT5. But what's interesting here is maybe this letter isn't necessary. You know, OpenAI, Sam Altman, who has been the real pioneer of this and really um, the leader of OpenAI, he said that they spent six months testing GPT-4 before they released it. So trying to reassure them that there are um, sort of constraints in place, they are being cautious. But, you know, Elon Musk for years has been talking about how he's afraid that the robots are going to take over the world and we need to be more cautious. But I think there's some question of whether or not um, whether or not uh, some pause would be good. But I don't think it's going to actually impact the customer experience. We as users aren't going to see a difference. It just means that perhaps even if this pause that Elon Musk is advocating for is a adopted, it just means we wouldn't see as dramatic a pace of change going forward from here. I think there's no way it's adopted. It's off to the race. It's a huge arms race right now. Uh, We'll see. Julia, we appreciate it today. Good to see you. Julia Borson for Tech Check. Former presidential candidate Andrew Yang was one of the, what do I call them, signees uh, to Musk's letter, signatories. Uh, Anyway, he'll join Brian Sullivan on Last Call tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. Don't miss it. Still ahead, the two-year yield has fallen a full point over the past month amid the bank turmoil. Meanwhile, the S&P is up 1%. If a recession is looming, where should you be seeking returns? We will debate that next. Welcome back, everybody. We've got some headlines on Fed Chair Jay Powell that I believe are coming from this bank hearing on Capitol Hill. Let's get to Steve Leisman with the details. What's happening, Steve? Hey, Kelly. Yeah, no, this is coming from a meeting that Fed Chair Jay Powell just had, we understand, with the Republican Study Committee. And there's a headline out from Representative uh, from Oklahoma, uh, Hearn, that Powell uh, uh, said that one more rate hike was coming. But our understanding is that's not really what he said. According to the person in the room, if we Uh, communicated with that Powell was only citing the summer of economic projections forecasting one more hike. He did not like say there's going to be one more hike. He just said, hey, the summer of economic projections says that you can see where the May Fed meeting is, the probabilities. They had actually declined, gone more towards a cut on this comment. There was a little movement in markets. We just want to be clear what what Powell said. Our understanding is what he said is this is what the SEP says. He wasn't saying to the Republican Study Committee that there was going to be uh, one more hike. 
All right, Steve, thank you for clarifying. We appreciate Pleasure. it. Our Steve Leesman. Uh, let me turn bring in my next guests, uh, Chris Crisanti and Jim Bianco, to respond to this as we see negative stock market sentiment as well has been surging of late. Uh, Chris is chief equity strategist at MAI Capital Management. Jim is president of Bianco Research, and welcome to you both. Quick reaction, Jim. Um, you know, how important is the next Fed rate hike or two or three or cut to uh, do you prefer stocks or bonds here at this juncture? Well, uh, the next rate hike is going to be really determined by what is the fallout of this banking crisis. Are we going to continue to see some kind of a credit contraction because banks cannot trust their deposit base? I happen to be in that camp that the deposit base is now unsure for the banks. They're not going to be as willing to hand out loans, and that's going to lead to a broader and faster slowdown in the economy. If so, then the Fed's not going to hike rates. If I'm wrong on that, then we've overstimulated the economy and they're going to hike rates aggressively. They're going to go right back to where they were in the beginning of March and be looking for 6% or more. So expect extreme volatility in the bond market, which is what we've had. Given all of that, I think that the thing that is most at risk is risk markets like credit and like stocks, and that they are going to be really struggling in this environment, even though they haven't been for the last few weeks. I think as we go forward, it's going to be a, a bigger struggle for them. So you would rather, if I gave you the choice, you can own the NASDAQ, uh, or you can own the two-year. What would you pick? Well, let's see. The two-year has had its worst year ever, and it's still outperformed the NASDAQ over the last 18 months. And now that the two-year is giving me over a 4% yield, uh, I would probably pick that going forward from here, because I'm not sure that the economy is ready to turn around if we're facing a credit crunch. Chris, which side would you be on? You know, uh, Kelly, it's good to be with you again. I I think the problem with taking the bond side here is it's become the consensus bet. So, uh, you know, the, the two-year had, uh, although Jim is right, it's obviously rates have come way up over the last 18 months. In the last month, the two-year has had its best period probably since the 1987 market crash. Uh, the 10-year the has dropped 70 basis points in the last month. So, so this is not a contrarian idea. This is one that, that the train has left the station, everybody's on board. I think actually stocks are the contrarian idea right now. And for that reason, there's some bargains to be had in the market. Do you remain, if I'm not mistaken, somewhat bearish about where the overall economy is headed? And, and I, again, I know you were saying just recently that you are uh, excited about bonds for the first time, but did we just kind of pull forward a year or two of returns into a one-month period yeah. of time? I think to really get on the, the bond train at this point, you'd have to believe that Jay Powell is going to lower rates rather quickly over the course of 2023. And I just don't see that. I, I think the market is anticipating that. And, and if he said anything, he's been straight with us and saying, you know, higher for longer. Now, we may have a pause, but that's a lot different than rates going down to support a, an even lower tenure than we've seen over the last month, again, as it's dropped 70 basis points. And so, so I, I think uh, Jim and I are, are relatively pessimistic looking forward on the economy. But I think the difference we might have is I think a lot of that is in stock prices, at least certain stock prices already. All right. Oh, have to leave it there. Can we can we do it again? Uh, would that be all right, gentlemen? Thank you very much for your time today, sure. Chris Grisanti and Jim Bianco. That does it for The Exchange. Tyler's already getting ready for Power Lunch after this quick break. I will join him. Wow, busy over there. Wow. What is going on? We're back after this. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. 
From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.